When we moved to Texas as a newly married couple and started looking at houses, we found two that we thought might work for our family, but they were very different. One of them was a new construction. It was a little small, and it, was, it wasn't in a good location, but it was new. The other one was a foreclosure, and it was a fixer-upper in every sense of the word. I mean, three kinds of awful laminate flooring, mismatched paint, really weird lighting fixtures. It was just bizarre. And we were really wrestling which house to, to make a, an offer on. And I, I talked to my mentor who lived in Tyler, Texas at the time, and he had built two houses on his own. And I told him, hey, here's the two we're looking at. And he said, oh, it's a no-brainer. You got to go with the nasty fixer-upper house. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, are we really going to do this? And I told him, I said, listen, if we do this, you're going to have to help me because I don't know how to remodel a house, but I'm willing to learn if you'll help me. And he said, I will. Made an offer. We got that house, and he did. And we spent so many late nights at that house breaking up the flooring, installing new laminate, laying you know, baseboard and trim, um, changing outlets, lighting fixtures, you name it. And when we moved in, finally, when we moved in, it was a very different house. Now, fast forward, 18 months later, we've got a nine-month-old baby. Katie is pregnant with our second. It's, big, it's the beginning of the summer, which was the craziest time of year for me and my job at the time. And I wake up one morning, and I put my feet on the floor, and immediately I knew something was wrong. Because the carpet below my feet was sopping wet. I thought, this can't be right. I got out of bed, started walking towards the hallway, and each step was squishier and squishier. And I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm like, we live in hot, dry Texas. It hasn't rained recently. What is going on? I get to the hallway, and I look, and there is two inches of standing water and the entire rest of the house. What had happened is in the middle of the night, our water heater broke and it poured hundreds of gallons of water into our home while we were sleeping. It was a disaster. So we, you know, we got all the humans out of the house, we salvaged any furniture that we could, but all of the flooring, the carpet, all the baseboards, even some of the drywall, it was ruined completely. And we spent that summer living in a hotel with a nine-month-old baby and a pregnant wife, so that was fun. Um, but I will never forget that moment, looking down the hallway, that moment of devastating discovery realizing everything that I had worked so hard on, that we had worked so hard on, was ruined. And in Matthew 7, the text that you just heard, Jesus, he tells us that's going to be the experience of some people. And it won't be about a house. It'll be about their life. That there will be a moment of devastating discovery, realizing everything that I built with my life is ruined. And if, if Jesus was right, then understanding what he meant and avoiding the disaster he's talking about is incredibly 
important. Now, now this warning comes to us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been studying that as a church community the past three months for over 100 verses. Jesus has been telling us, this is what it means to follow me. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a series of warnings, four warnings to his audience and to us. And last week we looked at three of those. Today we look at the final warning. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus, he says, Therefore, in light of everything I've said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. In Palestine, where Jesus lived, where he taught, ministered, where you built your house was incredibly important. Palestine was a land with a lot of hills and mountains, and as a result, when it would rain, it would flood. The Jordan River would rise, the streams and the hills would overflow, and they would spill onto the plains below. And if your house was on those plains in the lower part of Palestine, the only way that your house would stay standing was if it was built on a rock. And as a carpenter or a stonemason, Jesus, he knew something about construction. Now, in this illustration that Jesus is saying, what is the rock? Well, he's quite clear. The rock, it's Jesus and his teachings. He is saying the house or the life that's built on what I have said is secure. And in contrast, look at verse 26, and this is the warning to all of us today. Jesus, he says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, why in the world would anybody build a house on sand? Well, sand was easier to build on than rock. You wouldn't have to look as hard to find it. It was plentiful. And it was also easier because you didn't have to dig down as deep to find the rock. You just put your house on top of the sand. But sand is a horrible foundation. Now, what's the sand? If, If the rock is Jesus and his teachings, what's the sand? The sand, quite clearly, in Jesus' mind, is any other foundation that we build on, anything else. When a storm comes, when the storm comes, that house will collapse. Now, Jesus' words here to us are pretty straightforward, aren't they? But I want to make three observations from this passage. The first one is this, everyone builds. According to Jesus, everyone builds. If you notice the two examples, they're both building. And like these two builders, all of us, every single one of us today, we are building our lives on someone or something, actively or passively, consciously, or subconsciously. We are all building the house that is our life every single day. And the two options, the only two options that Jesus gives for where we build our life is rock or sand. It's the teachings of Jesus or everything else. You know, some some things in life are either or and some are both and. Peanut butter and jelly. 
I mean, come on. Turkey and dressing, ice cream and brownies. So both and, but some things are either or. Like go to the beach or the mountains, you can't go to both. Tennessee football or Alabama, you can't, you can't have both, right? Jesus is saying, this is an either or. This is not both and. You, you are either building your life on the rock or the sand. Some of us would say, no, I'd like to kind of have a life that's 50-50. Now, Jesus says it's either or. But make no mistake, we're all building. The second observation I want to make is, is this. We build by doing. By doing. Jesus, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, what, what words is he talking about? The, the words of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears everything I've taught and puts them into practice. You see that? is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Sometimes we take this passage and we interpret this to be an evangelistic message, like, you know, put your faith in Jesus to save you. And when you do that, you put your house on the rock. And there is truth in that idea. That's not what this is saying. How does the house that is our life get built according to Jesus? by what we do, specifically by our obedience to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, by doing what he said to do. That's the difference. Listen, the wise guy and the fool, what's the difference? They both heard. Jesus is clear. They, they both heard. They probably both understood. They may have even agreed. The difference is what they do with what they heard. How many of you remember G.I. Joe? I mean, come on. You know, and if you're in your 20s, you're like, what's G.I. Joe? Shame on you. You, you need an education. G.I. Joe was this incredible cartoon, right, from the 80s, and also a series of awesome action figures. And if you remember the, the cartoons, every cartoon, G.I. Joe cartoon, would end with a PSA, public service announcement, usually about child safety, something, some random tip. And then Joe would say, how many of you know this? Joe would say, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. You remember that? Now, I, I don't want to shatter your view of G.I. Joe but he was wrong. What? Yes, G.I. Joe was wrong. He's only wrong when Jesus says he's wrong, but according to Jesus, listen, knowing is not half the battle. According to what Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you know every, you can know all the truth in the world. You can know all spiritual truth. You can memorize the Bible and be a fool. Now, Jesus says it's what you do that matters. And, and, and by the way, this is not a one-time thing. You know, you obey once. The verbs in this verse are in the present tense, meaning the idea here is whoever keeps hearing these words of mine and whoever keeps doing them. Now, Jesus is saying, no, you don't just do it on Sunday and then the rest of the... No, whoever keeps doing is like a, a wise man. Now, if you're following along, it, you know, some of you, you've been with us as a, a church community through this whole series and studying the Sermon on the Mount, and may, maybe there's a part of you that's, you know, that you're feeling like, Matt, 
all these messages feel like you're just saying, do, do, do. It's all about what I do. And if it feels that way, I think that's good because that is Jesus' emphasis in these chapters. And hopefully, we, we've done a good job, Patrick and I, of unpacking the, the character of God, that the commands of Jesus flow from his wisdom and his love for us. But, but make no mistake, there is a heavy emphasis on what we do. And I don't know if that's created any dissonance for you, but let me speak to that. How do we understand Jesus' emphasis on obedience in light of all that the New Testament says about grace and freedom in Christ and about what Jesus himself said, about his yoke being easy and his burden light? I want to show you a chart that I call the, the Christian life matrix. And I took this idea from something shared by Rich Velotis, and then I, I edited some, and I think it helps demonstrate different approaches to the Christian life. Now, if you'll see on this chart, the vertical axis here is acceptance, meaning God's acceptance of us. If it's low, that means you, you don't emphasize that part. If it's high, then you really emphasize it. And the horizontal axis is obedience. On the left, you have low emphasis on obedience to Jesus. On the right, you have high. And this naturally, these lines, it makes for four different quadrants, four, four different approaches to the Christian life. Now, first, the, the bottom left part of the chart, this is what I call the Jesus neutral approach. There is a a low emphasis on acceptance with God. So I, I'm not even sure if Jesus loves me or accepts me, I don't know. And then there's also a low emphasis on obedience to Jesus. You know, maybe, I, you know, Jesus has some good things to say, but I'll run my own life, thank you very much. And the result of this kind of an approach, it's functionally agnostic, right? Jesus is just irrelevant to your life. But this is one way to approach the Christian life. On the top left, you have what I call the Jesus fan approach. And here you have a high emphasis on acceptance. So I believe and value the grace of Jesus, that he saves me apart from anything I do, apart from any works. But there's a low emphasis on obedience to Jesus. And it's likely here, you know, in this approach, it's not that you necessarily disagree with Jesus. It's just that you don't take his commands all that seriously. And so the result of this approach, again, you're, you're a fan. Like, Jesus is pretty great. It's kind of like the, the hat from me a few years ago, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you guys remember all that? That's this approach right here. Now, the bottom right is what I call the Jesus pleaser approach. Or you could say Jesus performer. I'm, I'm trying to please Jesus. And in this approach, there's a low emphasis on acceptance. So I'm not really sure where I stand with Jesus. And, and maybe, and this is how some of you grew up, maybe this is where you are today, maybe you feel better about your standing with Jesus if it's a good day, if you're getting an A on your spiritual report card. If it's a bad day or you're struggling, you're like, I don't know about today. But here there's a high emphasis on obedience. So I take really seriously the commands of the Bible. And, and this often comes, this, this desire to obey, it comes out of a, a desire to be godly, but 
it's also motivated by fear. I mean, because I have to obey. Because what's at stake is my acceptance with God. And so the result of this approach to the Christian life, it's essentially legalism. It's, it's a posture of trying to earn the approval of God. Now the top right is a different approach. The top right is the Jesus disciple approach. And here, there is a, there's a high emphasis on the acceptance of God, of us. So I deeply believe Jesus loves and accepts me, and that frees me, by the way, from feeling like I have to earn anything. I'm already in the Father's house, and I'm secure in his love. And there's also a high emphasis on obedience. Because Jesus loves me, I desire to love and honor him by following him. You see, salvation here, it's not just transactional. Jesus saved me so I can go to heaven when I die. No, Jesus brought me into a saving relationship with him, and now I live in this relationship with Christ, and I want to obey him, not to earn, but because he loved me first. The result of this kind of an approach, top right, is grace-motivated discipleship. That's what I'd call it, grace-motivated discipleship to Jesus and this is what God wants this is what God wants and you, you know the sermon on the mount Jesus has been hammering this left to right axis hasn't he he has been hammering this idea of obedience he's saying following me this is what Jesus is saying to us today it's so simple sometimes we miss it Jesus is saying following me by obeying what I am saying is really important in fact if you don't value that, if you neglect to obey, to put my words into practice, you are building your life on the sand. But we have to hear what Jesus is saying today and in the Sermon on the Mount and apply it in the context of the whole of the New Testament and all of what Jesus taught of our acceptance with God through Christ. And we have to live from the top right quadrant. Not the bottom right. So some of you, you know, we talk about obeying Jesus. We tend to think, oh, are you saying it's a legalism here? No. But whether or not it's legalism is about your heart. You can hear Jesus today and you can think, man, I got to build my house on the rock. So I got to read my Bible 10 times a day, pray, whatever else you know to do. That's not what Jesus is saying. You are loved by God apart from anything you do, and yet your obedience matters. It matters. And by the way, we are never going to obey perfectly, are we? I don't know, but you know, I know some godly people in our church way further down the road than me, and you know, maybe they're perfect. I don't think they are. We're, we're never going to arrive here, but praise God, that's not the grounds of our acceptance with him. And at the same time, we still obey. And I love the way that the NIV translates this verse because it says, whoever puts these words into practice. And that's what obedience is. The, the idea of practice, it implies imperfection. None of us are gonna offer Jesus perfect obedience. But what we can is by his grace and through his spirit, offer him an imperfect practice of doing what he says to do. And just take the next right step. Jesus, I'm gonna... 
obey you. Now, the third observation I want to make is this. So we, everyone builds. We all build. We build by doing. Uh, thirdly, we see in the text that the stakes are high. The stakes are so high. Jesus says in verse 27, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Scholars, they talk about how the language that Jesus uses here is really dramatic, that these words are strong, that it's not, Jesus is not saying, you know, things kind of fell apart a little bit. No, he's saying this is complete and utter destruction. Now, what causes the great crash? A great storm. And I want you to notice that in both cases, the storm comes. <laughs> According to Jesus, there is no house, there is no life that doesn't experience the storm. Now, what is the storm that he's, that he's saying is going to come? Well, it might be in part the storms of life. All of us experience inevitable trials and tribulations, and those test the strength and durability of our faith. But most scholars agree, and I, and I believe, in its context, this is talking primarily about the day of judgment that Jesus just referenced a few verses before this. The day prophesied about in the Old Testament and Revelation that will happen at the return of Christ. And Paul echoes this idea. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. Paul, he says, so no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Why? Because the day, that day, will bring it to light. And on that day, for those who have put the words of Jesus into practice, it will be a great confirmation. And for those who have not put the words of Jesus into practice, it will be a day of devastating discovery. Now, isn't this narrow? Let me just comment on this. I mean, Jesus, he's saying, the only life that matters is a life built on me and what I'm teaching. Isn't this narrow and, and a little bit arrogant of Jesus to say that when the answer is, it depends. Because if Jesus is wrong... And this really is just one way to live. Then this is narrow. And this is arrogant and egotistical. But if Jesus is right about the day, and if his insight into life is right, then this is the most loving thing he could do. To raise the alarm. You know, when I was growing up, we had a, a station wagon. Those things are awesome. You guys remember station wagons? And we would ride around in the back, me and my brother, and you know, the very back, you're facing backwards through the window. And it was awesome, except for when you were at a stoplight, it was really awkward, because you're just like staring at the person. <coughs> and you're trying to you know, figure out, where do I put my eyes? You know. um, but I have this memory. One day, we, we came home, and I think my dad forgot something, so he, he parked the car in the driveway at our house, left it on, and ran inside. Big mistake. Because I was in the car, my older brother was in the car, we were in the far back, and then my younger brother, who's probably three or four, was in the car, and my younger sister. Well, in the time, in the few seconds, <clears throat> and I asked my dad yesterday if I could tell the story. He said it's fine. So, 
in the time that my dad went inside the house, my younger brother climbed into the front seat, grabbed the gear shift, and pulled it down into reverse. And I'm pretty sure he's just laughing. And we are in the back at this point. The car is moving backwards, and me and my older brother are terrified. We are screaming because in the back, it's terrible. You, you're trapped. You're stuck. And we also could see where we were going. And we couldn't do anything about it. And thankfully, my dad runs out of the house. He sees what's happened, and he, and he, it's like a movie. You know, he runs around to the side of the car, throws open the door, grabs my brother, throws it. Just kidding. He didn't. And he, he gets in, and he pushes the brake, and it's, the car stopped, and everybody was safe. You know, if Jesus is right, Jesus is right. There are a whole lot of people headed for a crash, and they don't know it. And it's like through this confrontation, this is confrontational. Through this text, Jesus is saying, look up, look at the windshield. Look. He knows what's coming, and in love, he wants, he invites us to build a life that will endure how do we respond to this today? Let's look at how this first audience responded to these words of Jesus. He finishes the sermon again, just mic drop. He just says, yeah, this is, you know, he tells us about building our lives on the sand, on the rock. He says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And that's the Greek word ekplesso. And it doesn't mean amazed, like impressed, like, wow, that was a good speech. It means overwhelmed. Why? Why were they overwhelmed? Well, we learn in the next verse. is because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. If you write in your Bible, circle that word, authority. The, the defining characteristic of the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament is that it came with authority. Authority. And we don't like authority today. We, we tend to be anti-authority in many ways. But in the gospel, listen, Jesus, not only in his teaching, Jesus exercises authority over demons, disease, over nature, over sin, over death. You, you want to know something that you notice, though? If you read the New Testament, none of those things ever say no to Jesus, to the authority of Jesus. Jesus never says to a disease, metaphorically, be healed, and the disease says no. Jesus never says to a demon, be cast out, and the demon says no. But people do. Many of the people that Jesus spoke to that day in Galilee they said no to following him. And many people today say no to Jesus, to the authority of Jesus, no. In a room this size, there are people who say no to Jesus. Now why? Why, unlike everything else in creation, why can we say no to Jesus? The answer is because we are in relationship with him. Jesus is not in a relationship with disease or demons, but he is in a relationship with us by faith. 
And Jesus today, he will not force you to follow him, to live under his authority as your rabbi, to build your life around him and his teaching. He will not force you today. But he invites you. And you have to choose how you will respond to that. There's real choice here. There was that day, there is today. And ultimately, the choice that I'm talking about, this is the choice underneath all other choices that we make spiritually. It's will we choose to follow Jesus, to submit to his authority with everything. There's a a story told of the Knights Templar and their baptism. It's probably a legend, but it's a fascinating image. The Knights Templar, before they headed off to fight in the Crusades, they were baptized by the church. And as these knights were baptized, they would hold their swords above the water as they were immersed, symbolizing they were surrendering everything to God except for their sword. I don't know about you, that's how I follow Jesus a lot of the time. That's how many of us follow Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'll submit to you in everything except, except my kid's future or my vision for my career or my sexuality or my 401k. And the invitation today, and really for the rest of your life, it's to bring all of your life, all of it, under the authority of Jesus. And there's so much at stake. Again, that's why this is spoken in love. I cannot imagine a worse feeling than realizing one day, devastatingly, that everything that I had built was on the sand. And likewise, I I, I can't imagine a better feeling, more grateful feeling than realizing with all of my flaws and weaknesses that I built my life on the rock. So how do we apply this today? You know, this message and really this whole series is about discipleship, isn't it? It's about discipleship. It's about following the way of Jesus. And when Jesus spoke these words, he was not the only rabbi with disciples. It's a very common practice. All kinds of rabbis, they had followers. And if you were a follower, if you were a a rabbi's disciple, you followed that rabbi everywhere. In fact, there was a blessing that people would give over a new disciple. And they would say something like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you walk so closely behind your rabbi that you are covered in his dust. You know, Dallas Willard, he sums up discipleship this way. He says, I am with him to learn from him how to be like him. That's discipleship. And I think if there's anything that we come away with today, but but really from this whole series, it's this idea. All of us today, in response to what Jesus has taught, this this is the response. We order our life around being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. What does God want for you today? Be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. What would it look like for you this summer, and if you dare, this, this year, 
and beyond to make a regular practice of being with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to intentionally pause every day through your time in scripture, through prayer, to just be with Jesus and learn from him how to be like him. This is the path to discipleship. And and this right here, I'm convinced, this is how we go beyond being amazed like the crowds that day. And how over time, we come to a place where we're putting our whole life under the authority of Jesus. So today, be with Jesus. To learn from Jesus how to be like him. And, And here's what makes Jesus so unique as a rabbi. And this is why it would be such a mistake to not take him up on his invitation to you. In Jewish culture, all Israelite children went through the first level of education, which involved reading and writing and memorizing most of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, by 12. So anytime your kids complain about homework, just, remind, just tell them, just say, hey, listen, you don't have to memorize five books of the Bible. Think about that. After that first level of education, most children in Jewish culture, they were done. But the best of the best could continue on. And they moved to a second level of education. And in that second level of education, they would learn from a rabbi about the rest of the Old Testament. And they would memorize usually a huge portion of it. And then after that second level of education... Almost everybody was done, but the best of the best of the best could continue on and become a disciple. John Mark Comer calls being a disciple as the apex of the Jewish education system. But becoming a disciple to a rabbi was extremely difficult. If you were fortunate enough to get an interview with a rabbi, and not many people did, That rabbi would grill you about everything you knew about the Torah, about different interpretations of the Torah, about how to apply it. And if that rabbi thought that you were smart enough, that you were gifted enough, that you were special enough to eventually become a rabbi yourself, then that rabbi would would turn to you and say something like, Follow me. Come be my disciple. It was extremely rare. It was a great privilege and a high calling. And only the best of the best of the best could be a disciple. And never forget, listen, Jesus Christ, the wisest, most brilliant, most loving rabbi, the creator of the universe. He says to you, come be my disciple. To you. In spite of all that you don't know, none of us have memorized the Old Testament, in spite of all of your flaws and failures, past, present, future, all of your weaknesses, which he is well aware of, Jesus Christ says to you, come Be with me to learn from me how to be like me. Do you see the awesome privilege that that is?
And now we get to decide. You get to decide. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that invitation? And every day, including today, every day, we choose. We choose. And with our, as Mary Oliver says, with our one wild and precious life, you've got one life every day, you choose. Will you take Jesus up on his invitation to follow him? Build your life on the rock. Or will you build on the sand? You pray with me. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. And thank you for Jesus. What incredible insight and just pray, God, for some of us today, including me, would you just shake us awake? Lord, I don't sense condemnation here. Lord, I really sense an invitation from you to say there's more to life. And so would you help us to know, help us to know, God, what that looks like for each of us to, to orient our lives around being with you. Give us the courage and the wisdom, the discernment to be different. Lord, in a, in a world today, in a culture today, it's so easy to, to be absorbed in it, to lose focus, to become distracted and cluttered. God, would you give each of us and give our church as a whole just a, a single eye for Jesus. May that be the overriding passion and focus of our hearts. So God, now we just sing to you. We respond for how great you are. Thank you that you even said these words today. You didn't have to, but God, you, you're inviting us to wrestle and to follow you. And God, we give you thanks. So we worship you now and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.